Hello and welcome back to the Diversity in Research podcast. My name is Lachlan Smith. And I'm Jakob Felfers Christensen. Uh, we hope you've been enjoying what you've been listening to. And we have another really interesting uh, interview lined up today. Jacob is going to tell you a little bit more about uh, John um, and what we can expect to hear from today's interview. Yeah, uh, today's uh, guest is uh, Professor uh, John McGrath, uh, who's a professor of medicine at uh, the School of Clinical Medicine at the Queensland University, um, where he works as a psychiatrist. And he's also a Nilsborg professor at Aarhus University in Denmark. And uh, we talked to him about running a large research project for five it's a five-year project with a team uh, in australia and a team in denmark on upper sides uh, uh, sides of the globe and the cultural differences uh, but we also dive into to, to the topic of mental health and having mental health challenges and what role people with that background or challenges uh, can play in, in, in research. And also he is uh, an experienced researcher with uh, uh, many grants, titles, uh, medals, and uh, very much uh, at the top of his research field. So it's also a question of what he as an experienced researcher can give uh, uh, of advice to young researchers moving into into international uh, research uh, projects and um, and what he thinks uh, support what kind of support uh, research managers can can give to this this one's a really interesting interview and I, I was particularly keen to speak to John having grown up in Australia myself uh, and worked in an Australian uh, culture, working culture, although not in universities, but now uh, living and working in sort of a higher education culture here in the UK. It was really interesting to talk to John about that. I look forward to listening to what John's got to say. Uh, one yeah. last note about this interview. It is slightly longer than some of the other interviews that, that we're doing, but we have kept it all in because we, I think we talk about some really interesting topics, particularly as Jacob's mentioned around mental health. Uh, so we've decided to keep it all in and we hope you find it really interesting as well. And let's listen to what John has to say. Welcome to uh, Professor John McGrath. Of, uh, you're a professor at the School of Clinical Medicine at the University of Queensland and a co-joint professor at the Queensland Brain Institute. And then you're also a sport professor at Aarhus University in Denmark at the uh, National Center for Register-Based Research. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jakob. Nice to see you again. <laughs> you too. And um, so we, we have, of course, invited you here. Well, full disclosure, I worked in the research support office and supported the application for the new sport professorship. So that's where uh, we know you're from. And... Uh, but we, of course, wanted to hear more about how it is to be more or less 50-50% in Denmark and Australia running two teams. And then, of course, as you work with schizophrenia, you're working with a minority group. 
and how is that reflected as we are talking about, about uh, diversity on this podcast. Um, so if we should uh, jump right to it. So you're, of course, from Australia and you had most of your career there, of course, with the research days abroad, as everybody in, in, in research has. Um, and then since 2017, you had the Newsboard Professorship at uh, Aarhus University as well. So you're running two teams on each side of the globe. And uh, one thing, of course, it's a time difference. We, of course, uh, scheduling this interview was uh, was more interesting than most other interviews. Uh, <laughs> but there are, of course, some cultural uh, differences as well. Could you... Could you Describe some of the cultural challenges you have met and the differences you have encountered running uh, these two themes for, for now almost three years. Sure. Um, well, first off, I, I'm very biased because I really, I, I love Denmark very sincerely. And, um, and due to coronavirus, I'm, I'm, I can't go there. So I'm feeling quite homesick. Um, Aarhus in particular is a very beautiful city. I'm very fond of um, the, the small town feel. I love jogging around the forests. And so I, 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 I sincerely love Denmark. Um, um, but ha having worked there half time over the last three years, I have another two years on, on, on um, my Niels Bohr professorship. Uh, which is a great privilege and, and I never take it for granted. Um, uh, it, it has allowed me to compare and contrast two academic settings. I work at the University of Queensland, which is about equivalent in ranking with Aarhus University. We are both very big universities with, you know, 30, 40,000 staff and students. University of Queensland is in the top 50 on most ranking if, if you if you believe in those ranks <laughs> um, but but we are also research intensive um, so um, I, I I have always been attracted to the style of research that my friends in Denmark have done uh, I've worked in the in the UK and I've visited America I've worked in the U in America as well I was based at Harvard for a while um, and and I've, I'm drawn to the quiet reflective humble style of Danish researchers Maybe that's just the type of people I select. So, you know, we, we make the niche around ourselves um, and maybe I select people like that. So I, I feel very comfortable working with my colleagues in Denmark and also getting to know Aarhus University. Um, in some ways, as you, you will know from your experience in academia, that, that the universities are a bit of a bubble. And um, I sometimes feel um, that... Uh, that, that going to work and, and shopping and whatnot, I don't get a full perspective of Danish society. I tend to be biased uh, on the people I, I, I meet and, and I walk from my apartment to the university. Um, actually, one thing that I do feel very, very um, felt acceptable to, Jakob, is that when I'm in Denmark, I feel short. Because <laughs> you Danes are just taller than us Australians. And then, then I come back to Australia, I feel I'm not that short. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, um, I think um, um, Australia is a big country. It's a new world country. We're 25 million people. And Denmark is a, is a small country. And I've heard lots of ministers of health and ministers of science and prime ministers give speeches. And, and they, they say things like Denmark is a small country and we must be fiercely... Um, protective and proud, etc. We must invest in this. And uh, so it's a little bit of a, a, a apologetic stance. 
but I can see that Australia, because we 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 have an we had an we have an indigenous population. They we, they were here when um, we were first colonised by the Brits about two hundred years ago, and then we've had waves of migration: uh, Irish, Chinese, Italian, Greeks, Vietnamese boat people, Cambodian boat people, and now we have refugees from Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. And just last year, I think it was, we reached a threshold where 1% of Australians are now born in Africa. So um, we, we are, we, and we've had a, a specific policy of multiculturalism, where we don't expect people to throw away their basic um, eth ethnicity and cultural values. And we wear that as a badge of pride. And we kind of compete with Singapore for a successful multicultural society of course we're not we're, we've got a lot of problems and we're and um, we've got an appalling gap in lifespan for our our indigenous population but then when i go to denmark and 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 i and i hear uh, that the queen give her new year's eve message where she says we want you to be be more danish and we want you to adopt danish ways or, or that i'm putting that's not exactly what she said but i but i feel that there is more, um, a, a different attitude in, in Denmark about the, those values. And um, it's very dangerous to make sweeping generalizations uh, about, um, about two societies. But I think it's the culture and the history of the two nations does imprint on some of the values that we bring to, to discussions that, that we're gonna have today over the podcast about diversity, social inclusion, imagination of minority groups, how society can deal with that, how academic settings can deal with that, because we're not—we don't exist in a bubble. We, we exist against the wallpaper of society, and when you have one new world country like Australia or Canada or America, versus an old world country, particularly a small old world country, there, there are different kinetics and dynamic factors that drive that mix. Yeah, so I—I think that's that's really interesting, and and. And very, very spot on. Uh, I can, of course, mainly talk about about Danish culture, but also I, I was in, in in Melbourne uh, a few years ago and could see that it was a completely different world to 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 to, to walk in, uh, basically. And if, but if you, how does that reflect? But does that reflect in your work? I mean, you're running two teams on each side of the world yeah. on, of, on of the globe is there a is can you see are, are your teams in the team in in queensland and the team in aarhus are they are they different or can you see something about the the culture and does it inflict the uh, the collaboration between the the two teams yeah i i, I understand your question and and i think actually because I'm in that academic bubble. It's it's not so pronounced. I don't see rampant racism. Um, I see more subtle aspects about will this person fit in because they have a different color skin, or will this person fit in because they have a different religion? And I see that in Australia as well. So I don't think it's nothing that I see in Denmark is un, is unique to to that country. And I think Australia is the is the same. We we've just treated all newcomers badly over sequentially, like. The Irish, they were the worst because they had a different religion and they were like uneducated. And then it was the Italians and the Chinese, etc. So it's kind of always last in is the one to be picked on. Um, but the like in Australia, for example, Jakob, um, 
one in four people come from, um, from families where at least one parent is born overseas. So that really does just make the mix of society much more plural and much more multicultural. Um, and, um, but, but your country has the same, probably has the same set of laws about racism and discrimination that our country has. Yeah. So, you know, and we both value uh, human rights in egalitarianism. And there would be pockets of, of um, maybe some old-fashioned conservatives in both our countries. So I don't want to rank order this country scores is, is more ugly and mean to migrants than other countries. Um, and uh, uh, for example, in schizophrenia research, we see that people who are migrants um, to some countries have an increased risk of schizophrenia. Um, but we don't find that in Australia. And it's it's not so not so much found in 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 America or Canada either, and in fact some migrants in America in the U.S. have less mental illness. Um, so, but there are, but in in Sweden and Denmark and Finland and the United Kingdom, uh, people from certain backgrounds have an increase risk of schizophrenia. And the current theories are that there's some type of social imagination or racism or, or social defeat, that if you have a different color skin or you dress differently, then it may well be that you're, uh, you're exposed to low grade stress. Now, of course, I know what this is like. I've been in countries where I can't speak the language and I stand out and, and I feel frightened. And I think the taxi driver's ripping me off, but he's not taking me to the right hotel. And, you know, it's very easy for us to feel disconnected from society and I'm talking about you know many places I'm not talking about Denmark or Australia but but uh, um, so I, I think um, uh, but when I look at I, when I look at Australian culture I think we are very mean to our migrants as well so I, I don't know why only some countries get the increased risk of schizophrenia in their migrants and other countries don't it may well be something about the multicultural qualities of, of, of our nations. But, but I, I think with respect to university settings, we are an international research community. And, um, and so that, that makes us a different workforce. And maybe you, 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 you uh, but Jakob, what do you, do you work with other big multinational companies, like the big accountancy firms or the big uh, multinationals? I think they would also be a bit the same where they'd be used to having lots of people coming from different countries. I, th I think I think that is the case, and and that is of course also why I mean universities are such an, an interesting setting to to work with this, um, but I think there is also why we're doing this and why we also wanted to talk to to you about this and why I think this perspective on schizophrenia is, is quite interesting, is I also think that in in these bubbles it can easily be a certain level of naivety about this yes we can easily tell ourselves the story of this being a very international setting and i mean having worked with uh, with internationalization at the university and hearing about research and moving to denmark and this goes for i mean almost every country You'll hear stories about how they had difficulties settling in and felt alone and crying and people leaving. And that's, I mean, to some extent, that's just the the way it is. I mean, we are different and yeah. you're suddenly yeah. in a different culture. But I think also some of it is the question of a 
naivete about this being only focused on marriage and culture, whether it be based on nationality or sexuality or yeah. physical or mental ability doesn't really matter as long as your age index is okay. That is all that matters. <laughs> and, and I, I think that's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that's a healthy approach to make everybody feel good and perform at the best. Well, well, there's a, a couple of things I wanted to mention uh, about this topic about um, uh, sh should it just be based on your academic sort of metrics or, sh or w if you come from a different culture um, with a different set of expectations and cultural mores, whether that makes you a better researcher. So um, I can't give you the reference for this, but there have been papers about what makes a good team. So this is meta-research. It's research on research. And um, so it was done in a cultural um, um, social anthropology framework with observer participants going into various teams, looking at a day-to-day -day basis, um, passively observed. And they looked at this team had a difficult problem and they solved it. And it wasn't just like one field of science, it was many fields of science. And then they tried to distill in a qualitative fashion, what was the secret ingredient that made some teams more successful? And um, they said things like, well, you, you, you can't be too big, you've got to be a certain size. And, and um, uh, but then they said, oh, we need, they need, you need people from different backgrounds. And then, but, but, but here's, the, here's the interesting discovery. It's not, oh, well, you need a mathematician to help you do, deal with the maths. The, the, the reason why people from different backgrounds were adding to the, to the creativity of the group was because when you talk to someone who knows nothing about your field, you have to use different words. You can't use jargon. You have to say, well, I'm talking about this, these little strands of, of, we call it DNA, but there's a little sequence of different base pairs. And then this, so when, when you start to simplify and cut the jargon, then that can sometimes sweep away the cobwebs of tired, crusty, rusty out of date thinking so it's so this is why as a psychiatrist i like to talk to people with mental illness i, t I talk to the general community because it, it, it forces you to use plain language and that is the creative juices now on the on the on the flip side if you have someone in your group that can't speak english or danish or the, or the shared language then it then it actually slows creativity down and it's it's embarrassing for the person and it's embarrassing for the, for the team um, so there are there have to, has to be some common ground minimum shared ability to communicate um, and 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 this is why we want more women to be involved in science and why we want more people from diverse cultural backgrounds and diverse sex and gender and linguistic and we want uh, to, to facilitate that creative mix and um, and and this is hard to do and it won't happen overnight it, it's a generational thing and it has to happen against the backdrop of society as well but I, I would like to just go back to you the thing you talked about with schizophrenia because I mean both uh, Lachlan and I are openly uh, gay men and have worked in research and international research as such. And so we can talk about some of these these things easily. And the gender has been on, uh, on the agenda for a number of years in national cultures. What, what I, I mean, it's also very easy to see is a, 
is a university accessible to people in a wheelchair? Yeah. But when you talk about people with mental disabilities to, to some extent, I mean, the very severe cases obviously would mainly be in hospitals or medicated to some extent. But let's say milder cases, if they were in research, how do you, how do you include this, this sort of diversity in your team and how to, to work with, with that in, a, yeah. in diversity, to include that part of society and give people yeah. with mild, mild challenges in that direction a, a, a chance in research? Sure, sure. And just before I answer that directly, um, that, that, that we need to remind ourselves how far we've come in the last 20 years. I mean, there are laws in our country now that prevent you from discriminating based on sexuality or race or religion um, or sex or gender. Um, so that, that, that we should just, just pause and, and kind of congratulate our society for that, those advances. Um, so sometimes laws have to get ahead of cultural values. Now, with respect to um, discrimination against people uh, with mental illnesses, well, um, I think in the past there's been a, a certain amount of shame that you don't want to admit that you've had depression or anxiety or substance use. Um, it can jeopardise your health. and it, it may jeopardise your health insurance in some countries. Um, but with so much public awareness of mental illness and so many movie stars and politicians and, and opinion leaders talking about their mental illnesses, then th th that is slowly improving. And uh, so people with mental illnesses can get better and people with mental illnesses can be really valued members of society. Um, and um, so, uh, and things like depression and anxiety, Jakob, they're the things that we, you know, you and I get, these are everyday common colds. You know, one in four of us, one in three of us will get these. Substance use is so common. We all know people directly or in our families or in our social networks who have drinking problems, etc. Um, so I, I think stigma against mental illness, um, I think Denmark does, does quite well. That there's um, the, ability, the, um, the ability to leave your work and come back in a structured way and, and the Danish um, government will support employers that allow people to come back. And it's not just mental illness, it can be back pain or any type of disability. Um, I think Denmark does better in some respects uh, on uh, helping people with mental illness. Um, so, uh, but, but people with, when, as a researcher involved in mental illness, we really want to get that consumer perspective. And as I said before, Jakob, about um, how important it is to, is to, is to, is where you have to explain to, to people about what you found in plain language. And, and just uh, uh, um, what, what I've done with some of the Niels Bohr funds is I was able to, to employ um, talented people in uh, Copenhagen, actually, to do little cartoons that explain some of our findings. And we were able to get into quite esoteric concepts, you know, relative risk versus absolute risk. I won't go into the details, but um, we were able to do that. We were able to talk about psychotic concepts. And um, so it's just um, like a cartoon, 60 seconds, 90 seconds. We did it in English and Danish. And, um, and we got it checked out by people with mental illness and we got it checked out by people who look after mental illness. So can you understand this? And so I think it's important that, that it, we as, uh, as um, academics or consultants to, to industry and, and universities about diversity, we, we encourage people to do that. But it actually costs. It's not, you can't get this for free. 
some of these animations cost me several thousand dollars and a lot of time. So there are opportunity costs. I could be doing some core research and instead I'm working on like how to get it to 60 seconds. <laughs> Actually, I need 4,000 words. <laughs> so but any, anyway, I think um, and when it, the other thing, when it comes to involvement of people, um, uh, you, you may have representatives of people of different sexuality or different religions on advisory boards in, in companies. But if you want someone with a mental illness to, to play those roles, you have to equip them with training. They need advice on how to do it. And then you need to make sure they don't burn out. And um, just like many women feel that they're burnt out, I'm always the woman on the committee because they want to balance the gender and uh, they get this sort of committee fatigue. Um, so, we're, and there are particular needs for people with mental illness where they can cope with the stress, but we don't want to abuse their uh, generosity. That's, that's really interesting, John. Um, one of the things I think that's becoming more recognized now, and, and you've sort of started to touch on it there in, in your the work you do in schizophrenia and mental health, is that to help answer or to help solve some of the questions, some of the problems that society might face, be they medical, societal, economic, whatever they might be. Um, you, you need people who have some direct experience sometimes with that to be part of the process. So how, how easy is it to, for people who have had mental health problems to actually get into research roles? And and, as, and the teams you have in Denmark and Australia, do they have, yeah. do any of them have direct experience themselves? Lachlan, I can only talk about my experience in Australia because in, in Denmark, I'm working in, a, in what I call a dry lab where we just work on registers and we don't have direct clinical contact. I have psychiatry colleagues that do. Uh, but, but in Australia, certainly, we, we can um, uh, have people with peak consumer bodies where there's a team of people that are available to act as consultants. I was on the peak ethics committee for Australia. So we were, we were writing the guidelines for assisted reproduction technology and end of life issues. And we had people in wheelchairs and rabbis and priests and, and whatnot. It was like a, you know, the cast of a big grade movie. Everyone was there, all, all types of indigenous people. It was great fun. I was there three years. I really enjoyed, I learned a lot, lots of lawyers, <laughs> dozens of lawyers <laughs> and um, um, but uh, so uh, th so these people uh, uh, who can contribute to those high level committees are usually really one in a million they're really uh, capable people that where they'd rise to the top whatever they were doing but as as Jakob was saying before and people with some serious mental illnesses they're just not well enough to pay attention and to cope with that strain and it's not fair to, to, to expect that from them. So you need to be very mindful, just that as we have, you know, the, the wheels, uh, the uh, ramps for wheelchairs, we, we, we go to cross the a pedestrian crossing, we hit a button and it makes a, a noise for people who are visually impaired. Well, we don't have a similar set of psychological handrails to help people cope with that. So um, one of the things that Australian researchers are really proud of is this concept of mental health first aid or mental health literacy. This came from Tony Jorm and his wife, Betty Kitchener. And uh, so if, if you pass someone in the street and um, they're having a heart attack, I reckon a lot of people in Denmark and Australia would know to clear the airway. Maybe some of them would do CPR and they'd know what to do. If you see someone bleeding, most people would know to put pressure on the on the on, on the bleeding. But, you know, we don't know this intuitively. We've learnt it from first aid. So now we need to, to upskill. So what do you 
what do you do if you see someone who looks really depressed? What do you, what do you say to someone that says, I'm thinking of killing myself? Um, so we need to equip people with the scripts and the knowledge to say, well, actually, I'm worried about you. You don't seem very um, well at the moment. How about I come with you and we'll, we'll go to the hospital? Or do you want me to, to take you home now? Or I think you've drunk too much. I'm worried about your driving. And so, you know, we do that for our impaired colleagues behind the wheel. And now we need to do it for people with serious mental illness. So, and it, so there's lots of campaigns around the world. And one of the ones that's very successful in Australia is Are You OK Day? where we, we, we encourage people to ask, how, how are you? <laughs> are you okay? <laughs> and it's a simple way to get the conversation going about mental illness. And this is a nice, respectful way where um, you, this is not something we need to hide. We can talk about our own personal experiences. When, when I was depressed, I was like this, but I recovered. And the role of exercise and avoiding alcohol and, and seeking professional help and talk therapy and sometimes medication. These are the things that we uh, can all, all, um, all address. I'm not sure that I've answered your question, Lachlan. I can't, can't remember what the primary question was. <laughs> I, I guess I was interested in, I mean, that all sounds brilliant, actually. And I, and I remember some of yeah. the Are You OK kind of days from the times I've been in Australia over the last 15, 20 years visiting family. Uh, and, and I think Australia, like every country in the world, has, has come quite a long way, actually, around around mental health. There's still lots to do, but there's things we have absolutely. come a long way. I think I was interested also in understanding whether your the team that you work with in Queensland either have direct experience experiences of schizophrenia or mental health, or do they know people? What was it that motivated them to yeah. come into that research? And yourself? Yeah, so, so yeah, so Lachlan, we employ people with mental illness. So we, we, we did a survey several years ago and we employ people with mental illness to join the team. We've had artists in residence who've recovered from serious mental illness and we, we pay them a salary. They, they get, um, we never ask them to do it for free. Uh, we have consumer advisory groups and, and caregiver advisory groups. Uh, I'm very um, uh, profoundly grateful to these people. They've, they've, uh, they have my full enormous respect. Now, some of them have been battling serious mental illness all their life, and they're like heroes. They're, they're, they're kind of champions that, to, to do that. It's very hard. Like, we all know what it's like to have a sore toe or, or to have a, you know, have a headache, but it's hard to know what would it feel like if you had voices coming into your head or if you had thought that someone was controlling you. These are, these are harder for us to, to understand. So, um, so I think in, in, in our centre, we, we, we employ people that have recovered from mental illness. Our staff have had mental illnesses, just like every, staff everywhere. Common ones like depression and anxiety. Um, and um, so, and, but also many of us um, cross over. So, you know, I used to, I actually work at a hospital several days a week. And up until I, um, I started the Niels Bohr, I would look after patients. So when I go to the canteen to get my coffee, I'm there with the patients <laughs> and I, you know, they, they know me and I know them. So, and every day I'm reminded about our failings, that there are people still who aren't very well and we fail them and we, we just don't have good treatments. And one of the things that motivates my career, that why I go to work is I think we need to do better. And, you know, we put a man on the moon 50 years ago, crying out loud, but we still don't know much about how the brain works. So I, I feel very passionate about, well, we're not just going to wait and twiddle our thumbs and hope something falls out of the sky. We have to do the work. Now, what I can do in Denmark is that Denmark 
has the world's best registers, health registers, and has this fantastic universal health care. And they're wonderful people that, that support ethical research. There's this social contract with the Danish population and the, and the registers where they trust um, these uh, registers to protect them and protect their confidentiality. And that, that happens. Um, so that's why as a psychiatric researcher, I go to, go to Denmark. And um, so, you know, I think there are, there are, um, uh, there, there are opportunities for us to do better. We want to get better treatments. We want to prevent mental illness and we don't want to be happy with what we have now. So Danish researchers have, uh, have really made important contributions. And I'll just tell you a little personal story. I hope it doesn't sound too pompous, but before I got the Niels Bohr professorship, I was awarded something called the John Cade Fellowship. And John Cade was an Australian psychiatrist, worked in Melbourne at a long stay asylum, very much like the one I work in. I work at an asylum that's 160 years old. My office is an old ward. It's got bars on the window to stop me jumping out. <laughs> um, and John Cade in 1939 discovered that lithium was quite good for agitated patients. And, and he thought, he wrote a letter in our journal saying this might be good for mania. And then in Risco, which is a very beautiful part of Aarhus, where there's a, a, another long-stay hospital, um, one of the psychiatrists, Morn Scow, had, had a brother with serious bipolar disorder. And his boss said, why don't you try this lithium that this Australian guy was talking about? And lo and behold, it really was useful. And the, the heavy lifting and, the, and the, the translation was done by Danish, many Danish researchers and then subsequently American researchers. So I take a sense of perverse pride that, that Australia and Denmark were joined by lithium and, and Mornskow is buried at the, at, the, at the cemetery at Risco. And I, I want to make a pilgrimage to his grave. I think it's all been pulled down and turned into modern apartments now, which is mm. kind of like sacrilege. Mm. But, um, but th 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 we need more people like Mornskow. Mm. We need more people like John Cade. Where all those discoveries come from? And that's what I, I have to kindle with my research with the Niels Bohr professorship. Mm. Ah, it's really it's a, a, a fun connection uh, between the two and within, uh, within the area. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, and so you have these uh, good intentions about it and, and you're doing a lot of stuff, but I mean, we, you're obviously highly recognized uh, within your field and, in, in the world and uh, in medicine generally in in, in Australia, uh, and we like to rewrite uh, the the famous uh, Spider-Man quote a little t and say, "With great titles comes great responsibility." Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you have great responsibilities within your field of research. But do you also the platform like yours with the, with your title, the the prestige you have, does? Do you feel it come, do you feel a responsibility responsibility when it comes to promoting and ensuring diversity and and what can you do, especially as you are a white cisgendered straight man i mean probably the most uh, problematized part of the species <laughs> in, in in the world so i mean what 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 can you do and uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think um, the, the, uh, there's several parts to the, this answer, Jakob. So the first part is, 
what, what responsibilities do I have as a senior academic getting wonderful scholarships and professorships like the John Cade Fellowship or the Niels Bohr Professorship? Well, that's very clear. I, I need to build capacity. Okay, so I'm 62. I'm in my seventh decade of life. Um, but, but I've learned a lot about how to get big projects going and how to have how to go from a vision to a real world and how to what what do you do when you hit a dead end and one of the things that comes with age and and experience is that you you learn to okay when you walk in a minefield how do you walk out of it without exploding in the minefield we we make a lot of mistakes and, and I'm actually a huge fan of Niels Bohr uh, he, he, you know, he's such a wise guy and. Um, and I've got all these Niels Bohr memorabilia now. I'm just such a fanboy of him. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, he would say things like, your idea is, uh, you know, your, your idea is, um, uh, is crazy, but not crazy enough to be true. <laughs> and um, so I think, you know, what I want to do is to, is to, is to impart some of that, that vision and energy to the next generation, train the, the, the people who will make those next discoveries. And that's a great responsibility. And with Niels Bohr funds, I'm able to do that. I've got a bunch of really super clever postdocs. And um, we, you know, I sometimes tell them, you can look after me when I retired. <laughs> and uh, because, uh, you know, I know they'll go a long way. Um, and then with respect to being a role model for um, social inclusion in the workplace, then I think with psychiatric research, then we have a particular need to make sure we communicate our research to consumers. And I, th I feel that's a moral imperative. If you don't try to explain what you do to, to the mums and dads and people with the illness, then the government should ask for their money back. Um, so it's not always easy to do. It costs money and there are opportunity costs in doing it. But I think that should be written into the budget to, to democratise your findings, let everyone see them. And then to the final part about, um, about the workforce and what can I as a senior researcher do? Well, uh, when, when I do my job interviews, I'm very mindful of in, in subjective biases. I'm also mindful of the rules and the law. So we, you know, we have to merit select, I think. So um, we, we want to <clears throat> improve representations of minority groups, but I also need people who can do the work. I need people who have the core skills, the key performance indicators. And um, so if, if there are people from minority backgrounds and, and, and they have those core skills, then I'd be keen to employ them to send a signal to, to my colleagues. Now in Brisbane, um, we've got about 40, staff in the center and uh, you know we come from all walks of life it's a very international group and I think Aarhus University is also a rather international group though I can tell you um, that the, uh, the the rector gave a lecture in Copenhagen last year it was a great lecture about diversity and, and improve, in, in, uh, improving diversity more more women in senior professor positions and you showed some really appalling uh, statistics about the, the gender balance at, at researcher level, senior researcher level and professor level and, it, and it's just not a healthy look. Um, and then he talked about diversity in, in, um, in, in non-Danish citizens um, and he had a time series where he showed that you know the professors is about 12% for a few years and and then in 2018, it went up to 13%. And I thought, right, right, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the Australian that just bumped him up 1%. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that 
some of these things happen very slowly. So, but but answering your question seriously, I think that that um, that, that what, so what my university in Queensland does is that they have ambassadors, and they they have people. We, we have a whole range of committees to advocate and to loudly make a noise for the needs of people with all different diverse um, needs. And, um, and then you look at what's happening in women in science and there's so much work to be done, but actually we've come a long way with STEM and uh, science, technology, engineering, and medicine, women. And, and uh, um, so th we, we've got uh, pro-vice chancellors of, of looking after indigenous rights because our indigenous population in Australia much like the uh, the Greenlanders in Denmark, yeah. you know, they have really appalling health, really special yeah. tragedy. Yeah. Um, so, um, so we, 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 our university is trying to send a, send a signal that we need to do better. And you guys know, and Lachlan knows in particular about the Athena Swan initiatives and how Sally Davis, when she set up the National Institute for Health Research, says, "Well, you, your your university wants this money. You have to do these." bare basic minimum standards for in inclusion and diversity and, and looking mm. after the needs of women. So I think it, it comes from, from big sticks hitting the university saying, you want the money, you got to do it. And carrots where you get uh, gold stars. And I was just looking before I logged on that, that Australia has this thing called Australian workplace equity index. And it's an annual index that reports to pride and diversity about policies, initiatives at a university about equality in the workplace for people who, identi who identify as gender, sex, or sexuality diverse. Well, I hadn't heard of that one, Australian Workplace Equality Index. But that's another little badge where the universities can compete with each other. Like our university's got Athena Swan goals or, or this Workplace Equity Index sorry, baseline, whatever. So they, that, that will also happen. Um, so, but, it, but I think it takes a generation we, we can't we can't do it overnight there are some ingrained deeply held prejudices that we see in our parents or our grandparents generation but they will slow, slowly fade away so winding up on your question this is a long ramble i feel as a senior academic i, I have a, a duty and a responsibility to advocate for that and to practice what I preach and to send a signal to my staff that we love you all. We want diversity. If you can do the core job, we will not be biased against you because of various other factors that may, may make you in the, in the minority. I hope that's answered the question for you. Yeah, sure. So, and one of the things you said uh, is that you, you developing the new next generation of, of researchers and, uh, and, and training them. So, so based on your experience, what is the best advice that you could give to one of these young aspiring researchers who are perhaps for the first time a part of an international project or perhaps even managing an international project? Well, I, uh, <clears throat> um, well, I think what it's an apprenticeship so it's like learning how to, um, to, to, to carve wood or make cabinets. You've got to learn some basic skills and how to use this tool and that tool. You've got to learn about your toolkit. And then you provide them with that sort of, so sort of basic skills. But then the, the more important message to impart is one of um, vision. And what I want to do is to kindle creativity. I don't want people that 
that are frightened of telling me things, well, well John, I tested your hypothesis and it wasn't true or it's rejected. I want people to do that. I think they need to, in English, in English they talk about tugging the prophet's beard, where you need to, um, to ask the tough questions and not be satisfied with that. The, the, the science changes very slowly. And, and, the, and the, the, the rather droll observation is that science doesn't go through revolutions. It goes, just changes funeral by funeral as the old men die off. Um, um, but, so, but going back, there's a, I, I do give people, when they finish their PhD, I give them a book by a fantastic guy called Ramon I. Cajal, Ramon Santiago I. Cajal. He won the Nobel Prize um, for medicine in uh, 1920 or 30, 20. Spanish neuroanatomist, very creative guy. And this book was translated into English some 20, 30 years ago. You can get it from MIT Press. You can, I think there's a PDF you can get for free. It's called Advice for a Young Investigator. And Cajal is spelled C-A-J-A-L. And it's all beautiful. It's just like most chapters are, are as if it was written yesterday about you know, how to do research, how researchers are like different species as the crazy, you know, um, stubborn persons, the, the, sort of the, uh, the whole sort of index of, of different taxonomy. Um, and uh, the, 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 what drives researchers, the passion, and 90% of it is still fresh. There are a couple of things that aren't so fresh. He said he does research for the greater glory of the kingdom of Spain. Actually, I don't do research for the greater glory of, glory of the Kingdom of Denmark, or or for the or, or the Commonwealth of Australia, I, I'm not that jingoistic, or, and uh, um, but he also had a chapter about how a researcher finds a wife. <laughs> so you can see, well, you know, actually we we we've changed a lot. <laughs> we we laugh about it now, but in fact, that that kind of tells you that that, that, that you don't have to be a man to be a scientist. Yeah. And um, so, uh, but so I think the I think the advice finishing up on your question, it's about role modelling for the junior staff about how do you cope when your ideas wrong, how do you cope when your papers rejected, how do you cope when your grants rejected. You've had experience, Jakob, seeing distressed researchers where they you know their career is threatened and they put so much work into it, and you've put so much work into helping with the budget, whatever. Um, and then they miss out because it's a bit of a lottery or there was 10 grants better than them or uh, whatever. Um, so I, I feel as a senior researcher, you have to role model tenacity mm. and be prepared to, um, to guide them through. Like, you're still a good researcher. Don't give up. This is, uh, it, it inoculates you against rejection. Um, it's not unique to research. There are many fields of endeavour where you have to learn from your mistakes and uh, failure is the secret to success. You can learn how to cope with that failure. And um, so these are some of the non-specific messages I, I provide to, to my um, students. They're not all students want to be senior academics. Some of them want to go into other fields of, of society. And I think that's great. We need more well-educated people, researchers running governments and being involved in high levels of civil society. That, and that's, that's a good outcome. You think about engineers, engineers wouldn't, wouldn't um, as a field, they wouldn't criticise a colleague if, they, if he or she went off to run a chemical company as an administrator. They'd say, oh, she's done really well. She's, she's in charge of Dow Chemicals. 
she's not an engineer anymore. She's an administrator. And the engineers would feel so proud of that. But if you do a PhD in genetics and you go off to, to be in some company, they might think, oh, he's failed or she's failed because she couldn't cope with the stress of research. So um, uh, there, there are all these sort of uh, multifaceted aspects about how one survives in the research environment and how one survives if, if you leave the research environment. Mm. And that my job as a senior researcher is to give them the scripts to, to hold their hand, make sure they get through the tough periods, reward them for the successes and build a robust, tenacious, uh, focused and enthusiastic researcher because that's the capacity that we need. Yeah. I think that's a very sound advice for 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 young for young researchers. So we are almost running out of time. So we have one final question, and um, that is because a lot of our listeners are uh, also research managers and administrators. And when it comes to research projects, you often have a administrative support of some sort of pre or post award um how can research managers support or even promote the diversity agenda in in research projects and well, can you, they? you can at a central level you can you can mandate or or or, or make a, a benchmark that that faculties have to have certain number of women in certain positions i know that can't be done in isolation by a research manager so th there's that aspirational goal and uh, and so you, you put pressure on the on the on the on the the rector and the deans and the heads of department to reach those goals. Um, and then, with respect to um, research support, then it may well be um, you need cultural interpreters to, to help people from different um, different backgrounds to to cope with their experiences working in teams. Some countries have more hierarchical um, uh, sort of um, military type precision. Denmark's very relaxed. Everyone talks, uses the, the first name and it's much more um, sort of democratic society. So uh, there are some people that come from developing nations that that would be, you'd never call your professor by their first name. And uh, so there, there are those aspects. So I think that, that they are some of the the, the cultural issues that research managers, but I think you also you need to, to support you need to support some very neurotic, anxious academics, and you know you know what we're like, Jakob. You know we're pretty crazy driven. You know, oh my life's a failure. I miss out on the grand. No, no, you're still a good person, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> Things like that. But, but, but I'll let you wind up. But actually, I do have a little story about where Dan Danes are different from Australians and and other countries. And it relates to how bad the Danes are at, uh, at understanding people who try to speak Danish. So, <laughs> so uh, I know when, yeah. when, when I, I, I go to work at like, like today, I was at the, at the Brain Institute. We're still in lockdown, but usually it's got like 400 people. And I, I hear lectures from people from China and from France and from Japan. And they talk English with very thick accents. Yeah. And we've got a lot of French people on our floor. It's great. I love them. They're all very adorable. But, but sometimes they talk fast in English and I can't really, I really struggle. So, but in our society in Australia, our frontal lobes just decipher it. So we, we pay more attention and we can guess what they're saying. But when I try to speak Danish in Denmark, 
People just look at me as if I'm, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Completely like, I'm sorry, what are you saying? Yeah. And I'm thinking, come on now, you can understand me. I'm just, you, can't you work a little bit? No, no, sorry, John. Can, can you write it down for me? Yeah. <laughs> so you are, you are not used to people mangling your language. You've just got to get used to yeah. understanding people speaking Danish badly, okay? Can yeah. you do that for me? I'll, I'll make sure that happens. No problem. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, <laughs> No, but it is, it is a challenge. And I, I, when I work with internationalization and people who, international researchers who moved to, to Denmark, they had big problems actually learning Danish because as soon as people found out that they they weren't necessarily very good at English, they switched to to Danish, then they would switch to English because most people in Denmark would speak English. And then as often as a as a as a way to be polite, but actually you're not really doing them a favor because you don't get the chance to to practice the, the Danish. But I'll I'll make sure that we get better at that Danish. Thank you. <laughs> So I think that was this. We are running out of uh, out of time. Uh, again, thank you, John, for uh, for being on the podcast and uh, giving us some really interesting perspectives from uh, from uh, uh, from Australia uh, on on all of, uh, of this, both the internationalization and uh, uh, diversity to in in all these uh, shades, and uh, especially on the uh, mental illness uh, side of it, which is. Um, often un- overlooked and uh, uh, mainly because it's so difficult for, for so many of us to, to handle. So thank you for all of that and uh, hope uh, to see you soon in, in Denmark again when uh, all this is over and we can, uh, we can all uh, uh, travel again. Thanks, Jacob. It was my pleasure and very nice to talk to you tonight. So that was our interview with uh, John. And uh, as you could hear, he had a lot of interesting points and a... Really nice guy to talk to. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, he had so much to say and it, I, I don't know, really know where to, where to begin and where to end uh, with it. What, uh, what were your main points, uh, Lachlan? That was a really interesting discussion. You know, John is very mindful of the need to be inclusive uh, and, and to have diverse research teams. His research needs that. It's absolutely essential. Um, you know, he can't get away from that in terms of research in psychiatry and mental health and schizophrenia. But he raised, you know, challenges within that, that this isn't an absolutely straightforward process. And the fact that this process takes time. I, I loved his phrase around generational change and the fact that things are changing, that it changes funeral by funeral. This is a long term gradual process and and it's it's quite a funny phrase really but it's there's some truth in that in terms of not just higher education but a society more broadly it is a slow incremental thing and we'd like it to be faster in certain areas and i think there's things we could do but it's tough you know that there aren't people who are always willing to go along for the ride yeah so that was that was really interesting. He raised a couple of points around, I guess, measurement of diversity and inclusion. You know, around workplace equality indexes, around benchmarking, and it's one of those things which, for me personally, I think has a place. But 
like many benchmarking and scoring exercises, I think we've got to be careful not to become totally hung up on them and see them as the yeah. be all and end all because they can always have unintended consequences or people become very focused on particular uh, initiatives or particular ways of measuring things in order to make themselves look as good as possible. And, and you know, possibly the higher education sector suffers from a bit of that at the moment. So I think mm. there's perhaps something there um, and worth exploring. What it might look like exactly, uh, I'm not totally sure. Um, but it was an interesting point nonetheless. Yeah, because it easily becomes, I mean, this, as these are, our personal matters, our personal characteristics, and uh, in the times of uh, GDPR, even before that, it wasn't legal to register people on, on based on on personal characteristics. It 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 raises a question: What can we measure uh, in a benchmarking exercise? And if if we focus on on that, it it does easily become only what we can measure and that becomes a benchmarking, but is that necessarily what is interesting about this? And uh, yeah, that is of course always the, uh, the trouble with uh, measuring things and, uh, and, and benchmarking. Uh, but especially in something like this, I think it easily becomes very dangerous. It, it can do. I think on the back of the benchmarking, it's always useful to explore interesting good best practice mm. however you might want to phrase mm. it and i i think that's some of the really interesting stuff that can come out of those types of exercises yeah, yeah. that's the sort of thing i'd like to try and hang on yeah. to john also mentioned that higher education in and of itself can be a bit of a bubble um and it doesn't really matter what yeah. country you're in what research team you might be in what research uh, cultures or diverse cultures you're you're exposed to during your research you know higher education can be a bit of a bubble and, and it can be quite stark and quite different outside of uh, higher education it's really important for researchers to to keep that in mind and to use cultural intelligence to help them understand the stereotypes to help them understand different cultures in which they're undertaking uh, research different countries that they go to etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think that's a really important point that we shouldn't do sight of that like diversity is crucial I think it's incredibly important in higher education mm. incredibly important in research but make sure as researchers as people who work in this field we expose ourselves and understand different perspectives as widely as possible outside of that research team John touched on mental health as well. Um, this, this isn't an area that I think we thought we'd necessarily get into um, no. on, on this podcast. So it just kind of emerged as a topic. Mm. John's research is in this kind of area, but it raised some really interesting points around dignity and treating people with dignity. Uh, and I know for both of us, it, it, it actually really resonated in terms of the way you include people in research. Yeah, especially the thing he said about giving people a position, paying them, not having there as victims or data objects, but including them and using them to play a role in in the research projects in, in one way or the other. And I think that is a, a very interesting 
way to approach it, approach it, and uh, also the way forward. But also how he mentioned that when we look at mental health, it isn't doesn't necessarily have to be a a diagnosed essentially to hospital like schizophrenia or heavily medicated, but also I mean addiction in one way or the other that we have all mentioned or depression and stress, mental health issues like that, that is of course present in academia as just as everywhere else. And we perhaps haven't necessarily developed the tools to to talk about and also use the fact that people have been exposed to these uh, things and use them actively in their uh, as in their role as researchers. John certainly did raise a whole range of different issues um, and, and plenty of food for thought and it might be that we want to focus in on one or two of those over the coming weeks and months um, and if people have thoughts on that on what issues you think might be the most important to pick up on in terms of what John had to say then please do get in touch. I, I really enjoyed that, um, I thought it was a really interesting discussion and, and took us to places that as I say, we didn't really expect to go, which is yeah. which is how I think you want interviews to go, actually. I think it challenges us as yeah. much as the person that we're talking yeah. to. Yeah. Perhaps a final thing. Uh, this is, of course, uh, it's been a while since we had the episode with uh, uh, Felix in our, our first episode. If you haven't listened to it, please, uh, please do. But uh, what I think is interesting to hear is how they, as part of a of the majority being both being white cisgendered straight men sorry i have some dogs running around here um i think it's interesting to hear how i mean they have and this is not shaming them this really isn't shaming them it's just a way of showing how difficult this is that i mean they have really good intentions about this they want to see changes in this area and but they also, when hiring people, need people with very specific uh, skills to some very specific tasks. They can't just have anybody applying because they have a diversity background to, to create a more diverse team. They need someone who can do some very specific things in terms of research. And in that sense, it easily becomes just a question of if they are diverse, that is fine by me and we have room for everybody. But whereas our approach is is slightly different, we don't just want it to be okay. We actually want people to say we see it as a strength, and we you it's just not just that you can be gay. We appreciate you're gay, and we want you to bring that perspective to the research, as well as the this this skill set you have developed during your PhD and research career. And I mean, it's just. I, th I think it just shows that this is, is this is really difficult to navigate for someone who, of course, is mainly, if you should go back to the measurement and, and benchmarking, who are measured on some very different things in terms of research and grant holders than diversity. Yeah, this is this is absolutely right, and it's a it's a conundrum and a challenge. I think um, yeah. for all for all of us going forward, it's about changing the narrative and, and mm. not seeing equality, diversity and inclusion as a bolt-on, an add-on. It's actually an integral part of research and research teams. And 
it will happen. It might be funeral by funeral, but might be funeral, it, it yeah. will happen. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I hope everybody found that really interesting. Um, please do subscribe. Uh, please do follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at DivResPod, which is D-I-V-R-E-S-P-O-D. You can get in touch with us that way with any ideas or thoughts or comments about the podcast we've done to date. Uh, and you can find all of our previous episodes also by going through our Twitter handle. Thanks for being here. Uh, we will have another guest in another couple of weeks and we look forward to that. Uh, and in the meantime, look after yourselves and keep being diverse. Yeah. See you soon. See you soon.